Uh, yeah, so uh, good morning. And uh, you can keep your Bibles right where they are. Uh, Matthew three thirteen to 17 will be, our, will be our text for this morning. Um, I guess it was three Sundays ago we began uh, to look at the work of Christ. As if we don't look at the work of Christ all the time, but we actually began a series that really focuses on, on that uh, alone. And uh, we started with the incarnation of Christ, that's God uh, condescending, leaving heaven to come, kind of like the song we sang a minute ago, becoming a man for us, so that's incarnation. And then we moved to Christ as a young man or as a boy, and we looked at Christ in the temple as a 12-year-old, you know, how he got you know, separated from his family and he stayed behind at the temple and he was kind of there listening and learning and even teaching some of the leaders and they were just astounded by him and his family freaked out and they finally found him and there was a great lesson there for us. And we, so we've examined the work of Christ in his, carnation, uh, in his incarnation and uh, as even as a 12-year-old boy, how he was seeking to do the Father's will and, and um, serving us in a sense even as a young man. And then last Sunday, we took a break because I was away uh, in Kentucky, and we learned about God's fellow workers. And I just have to say, I don't think Colby's here today for whatever reason. He's getting married, so there's the reason. Um, but thank you uh, to Colby for, for preaching that message. That was really, really encouraging. This morning, we're going to re-engage our The Work of Christ series, and we're going to look at Christ's baptism we're going to look at his baptism. Uh, I think it's befitting that we would uh, pray once more uh, before we get to work. Uh, Father, we do humble ourselves now, and, and we thank you for this time uh, that you've given us to study, uh, to learn, to listen, to take notes. Uh, and more than even learning and listening and all of those things and taking notes, but that uh, we pray that the Holy Spirit would apply the scripture to our lives and make us a little bit more like Christ. Or if we're not like Christ at all, we have yet to become saved, uh, that you would work that supernatural uh, salvation in the life of someone here uh, and begin to make them like Christ. But in any case, we do want to give you our attention. We do pray against any distractions that we might have. As Kelly pointed out earlier, we step out of almost like a literal battlefield uh, in life, in business, and all the things that we're engaged in, and uh, it's just chaotic. It's chaotic to live in this community, in this state, nation, and uh, life is busy, and so just help to extinguish our focus on those things now as we uh, humble ourselves and, and sit beneath your instruction. And so we do pray that uh, you would sanctify us and make us more like Christ. Teach us about his baptism, its significance, its importance and how he, he was working through that for our righteousness. And uh, we do thank you in advance for what you do, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, let me give you just, I've got to give you some background uh, to build context. So I'm going to give you a little historical lesson this morning and stuff leading into, I mean, it'll all make sense when I, once I start bringing it together. But I just want to talk about our Bibles for a moment. Our Bibles, and, and many of you already know these things, and that's okay, maybe it'll be a refresher course or something, but our Bibles are comprised of two Testaments. You have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament. And the Old Testament begins with a book called Genesis. Genesis basically means beginnings. 
start, if you will. And so it begins with Genesis and it ends with a book called Malachi, which is kind of, it's a prophetic book. Um, and, and so it ends there. And then you have the New Testament, and that begins with the Gospel of Matthew, and it ends with a book called Revelation, which people seem to be incredibly fascinated with. It is a tremendous book. but um, And so you have Matthew to Revelation, you have Genesis to Malachi. That's basically, in a nutshell, your canonized uh, Bible, your Protestant Bible. You know, you've got 66 books total, 39 and 27. Now, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, you have what's called the intertestamental period. Okay, so so you have the Old, and then you have this gap or this pause, and then you have the New Testament it picks up. And so you have this space between the two, and it's called the intertestamental period. And it covers 400 years. So you had all this prophetic you know, saying and preaching and writing and, and songs and all these things in the Old Testament. And then you had this gap of 400 years, and then you have the New Testament. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight uh, the primary events of the intertestamental period this morning. I'm going to give you a historical lesson on what took place during that 400 years, because I think it's hilarious that, that Christians today, including myself, have just totally neglected this period of time. It's so important for us, even as Christians, to study the historical events of that time. Um, I wouldn't say that it's totally imperative or that our faith would be hanging on it because it's not a biblical time, if you will. It's a historical time. So, you know, it's not like it's an authoritative thing that we'll be talking about, but it helps to shed light on the situation when the New Testament began to be written or at, you know, at least with John the Baptist and these sorts of things that happened. And so you need to know what happened during that 400 years and that helps to shed light on the New Testament and what happened there. And so I'm going to highlight some of the primary things. Um, at the close of Malachi, the last Old Testament book, the nation of Israel is, is back in the land of Palestine, or if you want to call it the land of Israel, that's fine. And this would be after the Babylonian captivity. They, you know, were, they were rebellious people. They were shipped off uh, via Nebuchadnezzar, and they spent all this time in, in Babylon. And so, you know, at the close of Malachi, they've already come back, and now they're back in their homeland. Uh, but they're under the domination of the great world power of that day, and that would have been Persia, or, or I would say some people call it Medio-Persian Empire, the Medio-Persian Empire, Medio, however you want to pronounce it. And so they come back into their own land, but they're not self-governing, they're not autonomous, they're not really their own people, they're under the power and oppression of Persia. In Jerusalem, the temple had been restored, although it was, much, it was a way smaller building than it had been originally constructed through Solomon. It was a lot larger, and it was far more glorious and opulent when he built it. So it had been diminished uh, over time. So it wasn't as magnificent as it was in Solomon's day, but it was there. Um, and at the temple, or within the temple, the line of the Arianic priest was still there doing uh, 
priestly duties. And that would be the line of Aaron, which is the original line of priests for the nation of Israel, for the people of Israel. And so you still had Arianic priests exercising their duties and stuff like that. They were back in place when they returned to their land. And they were worshiping and, and carrying out the sacred rites that they had, that had actually been ordered from Moses way before any of this. There was actually still a direct line of descendancy in the priesthood that could be traced back to Aaron. Now, the reason why I say this is all of this was lost during this 400-year period. So, you know, by the time they come back into their own land at the end of the book of Malachi, things are kind of going back to how they should be. With the exception of they're under the rule of Persia. And at the height of the Persian power or empire, there arose in the country of Macedonia, which would be modern-day Greece, a man named Philip of Macedon. Have you ever heard of him? Philip of Macedon. And what he did was he began to unite the Greek isles, or all the islands of Greece. And he basically became this kind of singular emperor or ruler over the Greek isles, or over Greece in a sense. And all this was taking place kind of under the nose of Persia. His son, and this is the person that you'll recognize, his son was actually destined to become probably one of the great world leaders of all time, and that's Alexander the Great. And I think that most people have heard of Alexander the Great, probably the greatest military general to ever live. I mean, the guy was just, and the guy was like 20. Most 20-year-olds I know are, you know, you know, this guy was, I was, you know, at 20. I, I, you know, I was like, um, yeah, can I take your order? You know, I was flipping fish, I think, at Long John's. And so this guy was like ruling the entire world. You know, he, he was quite phenomenal. He had a phenomenal mind, just a brilliant war guy. But basically, Philip of Macedon, this is, this is, um, this is his son, Alexander the Great. And, and in 330 B.C., a tremendous battle between the Persians and the Greeks ensued uh, and really completely altered the course of history. It changed the trajectory of what was happening in the world. And when I say world, this is, at that time, the modern world. Uh, it doesn't mean that you didn't have people living in other areas and, you know, and pygmies on islands. You had people everywhere throughout the world. But this is the center of the world during this time, during this period. And so this war between the Persians and the Greeks, it really completely altered kind of the, you know, history or, or things were headed in a particular direction and this threw that way off of course. In this battle... Alexander was literally, Alexander the Great was literally 20 years old. And he led the armies of Greece in one victory after another over the Persians. And ultimately, in the end, destroyed the power of Persia. Which is, uh, it would be like Hawaii taking out the rest of the United States. You know, it's kind of like the, the Gideon you know, theory of having a small, very focused task military and being able to accomplish great things. I mean, that's actually, it was the Lord who worked all that out through Gideon. But, you know, you had this small force that was just so lethal. And so they basically smoked the Persian Empire. A year after this historic battle or these battles that took place and, and 
basically, you know, the Persian Empire crumbled at the hands of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, he led his armies into Syria, or actually into the Syrian realm, which would be down uh, in part, the Syrian realm was pretty large, it was in kind of another area, uh, and it extended down into Egypt and all of that, so that was kind of Syrian controlled, but Alexander was not satisfied with just conquering the Persian Empire, and so he began to travel down through Palestine or the area of Israel and headed down toward Egypt to engage the Syrians. On the way, uh, he literally planned to stop off at Jerusalem and, and destroy it and just conquer it and, and take it for himself. So, you know, it's, it's in route to where he was going. He figured, hey, I'll stop off. We stop off to get gasoline at a rest stop. He stops off to conquer a people, you know, literally. And so I'll stop off in Jerusalem. I'll take care of that little issue there. We'll plant, you know, we'll plant our community there. And as the Greek armies and Alexander approached the city, Word about this got back into Jerusalem, or at least to the Jews in Jerusalem, and of course they were frightened. They thought, you know, well, maybe being under Persia, and that's kind of ended now, but what does this mean? This young guy, I tell you what, he's, he's like nothing we've ever seen. He's going to come in and destroy us and our way of life, and we're finally starting to get things back, you know, and so... People were absolutely frightened. They knew or they found out when they, discovered they, uh, when they discovered that they were frightened, when they discovered that he was on their door, knocking on their door, and he was ready to come in and lay siege and maybe destroy the temple and do all of these things. So what happens is the Jewish high priest at that time, he was an old man named Jadua, and uh, he's mentioned in one of the biblical books, I think in Nehemiah, which is interesting, uh, this old guy, and he was a good, godly old man, and... Uh, yeah, he is mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. He actually thought, well, I'll, you know, seek the Lord and I'll, I'll go out and see if I can talk to this guy before he comes in and, and blows through the city like a hot knife through butter. And so he takes the sacred writings or the book of Daniel. <laughs> he takes basically the scrolls that he has the book of Daniel recorded on and he goes out to try to find and to try to meet with Alexander the Great. And he was accompanied by a whole uh, host of other priests, and they were all dressed in white garments. And so they went forth and met Alexander some distance outside the city. Now Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, he tells us that Alexander left his army and hurried to meet this body of priests as they were approaching. And so he tells his force just to stand down for now. He rides off and goes and meets with them. And when he gets to them, he, he told the high priest, now this is really interesting, he told Jadua that he had seen a vision the night before in which God had shown him an old man robed in a, in a white garment who would show him something of great significance. So Alexander the Great has this vision, and it says, you're going to be approached by an old man dressed in white, and he's going to show you something that's basically going to blow your mind. doesn't tell him what it is. He just says, he's going to show you something of significance. And I think this is just incredible, right? And this is, this is historical. Josephus recorded it. The high priest began to open the book of Daniel and read them and started reading these scriptures to Alexander in in the prophecies, Alexander was able to see the predictions that he would become that notable goat 
with the horn in his forehead. This was a prophetic word given about a particular leader in the book of Daniel. And Alexander the Great was able to parallel that person and that description to himself. So he, he made this parallel, and, 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 and in the prophecy it talks about this guy, this guy, this goat person with this horn coming out of his head. It, it prophesies and talks about him coming out of the west to smash and destroy the power of the Persian Empire and to ultimately conquer the world. And that's in Daniel 8.5. So here's the guy that's going to do these things and has already begun to do these things and has already smashed the Persian Empire. Here he is getting a prophetic word that was written long before he was born. He's getting a prophetic word from a guy and it lines up perfectly with this vision that he got. So Alexander the Great's mind was completely blown. He thought, are you kidding me? Your God must be something pretty special here. And he was blown away by the accuracy of the prophecy that he actually promised not to besiege and destroy Jerusalem. And so this was God's way of preserving his remnant and his people and them coming back in and beginning to do the things that they were called to do again. So I, I just find it astounding. Uh, tragically, though, not long after this, um, Alexander the Great died of alcoholism. Uh, basically, he ran out of countries to thrash. He ran out of territory to conquer and to take as his own. And uh, obviously not being satisfied by the gospel, you know, and, and having Christ, which is, which is terrible. He, you know, he didn't have anything else to do with his life, and he turned to alcohol, and he really became a drunk. And just in a matter of years, he ended up, I think he died of cirrhosis over, or an overdose or something of that nature. So he died. He died almost as young as he had become this world ruler just three or four years later. So he died. Now, his son had been assassinated. So apparently he had a young boy that would have been, you know, the, the, it would have been the future ruler of Greece, if you will, but his son had been killed, so he had no heir. And so this threw his kingdom into absolute turmoil, and his four army generals decided to take the empire and to divide it into uh, maybe we would call it four districts or something like that. So they take this, this, you know, Alexander's empire, and they divide it into four quadrants, if you will. And one of the generals was a guy by the name of Ptolemy. And he acquired the Egyptian district, which included all of Palestine. Okay? So basically, Ptolemy gets the area... And what happened was Egypt had annexed Palestine, and they owned it. Well, of course, when Alexander's armies took over these areas, they now owned Palestine. And so Ptolemy gets it. And this was actually really, really bad for Israel. This was really, really bad for the region of Palestine because Ptolemy was at war with Syria, who was just above Palestine. And so that literally turned again the whole region of Palestine into a war zone. And this went on for another hundred years. Now let's talk about the Hellenist Pharisees and Sadducees. This is where they begin to come into the picture. And, and some of these, actually all three of those groups are mentioned in your New Testament, in your Gospels. Um, during this time, Grecian or Greek influence became very, very strong in Palestine. 
I mean, it makes sense, right? You have basically Greece, which owns the territory now, and so, of course, they're going to be influencing, influencing this new territory with their way of thinking, with their religions, with their beliefs, and all of these sorts of things, even with their trade and all of that stuff. And so Greek influence became massive in the region at this time. There was a party or a group of people that arose uh, among the Jews known as the Hellenists, or that's what they became known as. The Hellenists were basically Grecian-style Jews. They were Jewish, but they were Greek-style Jews. So they, they held to the Jewish stuff, but they also held to the Greek stuff, which was really kind of contradictory to the Jewish stuff. And so they were kind of a strange breeder mix of people that had both influences going, and they were trying to influence other Jews, their other countrymen, with some of this stuff. They were very eager to bring Grecian culture and thought into the nation of Israel and to liberalize many of the Jewish laws, which uh, was a big no-no for many people. This caused another party or another group of people to arise, the Hebrew nationalists known as the Pharisees. That's how the Pharisees came about, and we've read about them in the New Testament. Um, they were this group that wanted to preserve everything, everything according to the Mosaic order, and therefore resisted all foreign influence. They were like these nationalists, and they were like, it's just this way, and we don't want you bringing that influence or those traits and those kinds of things, or even your commerce. We don't want that stuff coming. We, wanna, we don't want to lose our identity as Hebrews. We don't want to lose the Mosaic law. And so they, immediately there was this total resistance from this nationalistic group. And I would say that the Pharisees were, if we wanted to put it in modern-day terms or in postmodern-day terms, if you will, our terms, they would have been the theological conservatives of their day. They would have been. That's what they would have been. Um, and, and this group, this group called Pharisees, they grew stronger and stronger. And, you know, I think that a lot of groups like this begin with good intentions and a good foundation, but they begin to lose sight of the actual thing that they're to be about. Um, it reminds me of Revelation where, you know, Jesus tells the church at Ephesus that they'd lost their first love. You know, the Pharisees began, and it was a noble thing. Look, we want to maintain our Hebrew culture. We want to adhere to God's law, and we don't want these influences to steer us wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But what happened was it became legalistic, and they started adding things to God's law. They started writing in tradition and all of these things. And next thing you know, they think they're obeying God's law, but they're actually obeying their own man-made ordinances. And so they became uber-crazy legalistic. They became hyper-rigid, like totally intolerable, uh, almost to the level of the Sharia law stuff we're seeing out there. Like, are you, really? So you're going to get whipped for doing that? I mean, they just, they were hyper, hyper legalistic. The Hellenists turned to politics. Okay, so they figured, well, we're not too good at this religious thing. And so we'll turn to politics. And they basically kind of formed or became a group called the Sadducees. Okay, so you still had Hellenists around, but there was another kind of wing or branch that grew out of them, and they became known as the Sadducees. And they were like Hellenistic, but they were really political. They were about controlling the House, controlling the Senate, 
controlling the temple. Controlling, that's what they were about. They were these, a, a political force where the Pharisees were really about religion. They were really about the law and those things. And so you had this new group now that kind of cropped up known as the Sadducees. And they would have been the, in our terms, the theological liberals. That's what they would have been. They denied everything supernatural. They denied angels, demons. They denied miracles. They totally denied the idea of resurrection. Um, Totally. And as I said, Pharisees, Sadducees, and even some of the Hellenists, they are mentioned in the Gospels. And so it's during the intertestamental period that you have these war things happening, new control, and you have these parties in Israel being birthed and becoming stronger Hellenists. Pharisees, Sadducees, that's what's going on. In 203 BC, a king named Antiochus, and this is a king named Antiochus the Great, he came into power in Syria. Now this is where things really begin to turn for Palestine, the nation of Israel. I mean, seriously, this is where things really start to move in another direction. Antiochus the Great, he came into power in Syria, and he captured Jerusalem from the Egyptians Um, and began to reign over it. And so there was a bloody conflict. This Antiochus guy comes in, takes out Egypt or the Grecian Egypt influence there, wipes him out. He takes over. Now he's ruling and reigning over the whole region of Palestine. He had two sons, one of whom succeeded him and reigned only a few years. When he died, his brother took the throne. This man named Antiochus Epiphanes became one of the most violent, vicious persecutors of the Jews ever known. He was one of the most ruthless persecutors. You think that Hitler was the ruthless. You think that these other guys, this guy, uh, this guy was right up there at, the, at their level, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was unreal. In fact, he's often referred to as the Antichrist of the Old Testament. He's called the Antichrist of the Old Testament because he fulfills some of the predictions of Daniel concerning the coming of the one who would be a, quote, contemptible person, uh, unquote, quote, a vile king, unquote. So Daniel even prophesied that this Antiochus Epiphanes would come and he would be brutal to the Jewish people. His first act when he gained power was to depose the high priest in Jerusalem, thus ending the long line of succession, beginning with Aaron and his sons through the many centuries of Jewish life. So he brought the Arianic priesthood to an end. That was his first thing to do. We're going to break that line. You're not going to have an Arianic priest in line anymore. I'm going to to do my best to thwart your law and to thwart your rules and to destroy you. So he takes out the Arianic priesthood. Uh, Epiphany sold the priesthood, you know, like as if he was at, you know, Denio's farmer market or whatever. He, you know, he basically sells the priesthood to a man named Jason. There's a guy with a normal name. To a man named Jason who was not of any priestly line. Uh, Jason was tricked by his younger brother, and his name is uh, Manelaus. Manelaus basically tricked his brother and purchased this priesthood. And we're talking about the priesthood of the temple and all. This is like serious stuff for the Jews. He purchased the priesthood and sold the golden vessels of the temple to pay some tribute to someone else. Under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, the city of Jerusalem and all the religious rites of the Jews began to deteriorate in, in a way that was just, uh, just so alarming to the people. and just It wasn't unprecedented because they'd been through a lot already, but it was bad. 
In 171 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Egypt. This, again, put Palestine in harm's way. They were already in harm's way by being under this guy, but they weren't at war. Now they were brought back into warfare because now he's going, you know, he's traveling between Syria and down there to fight. And you must know that Palestine or this whole region is one of the most fought over regions in the entire world in world history. Uh, Jerusalem is the most captured city in world history. You may not have known that. It has been pillaged, burned, destroyed more than 27 times. And we all say to ourselves, gosh, why do they have such trouble there today? They've had trouble there since they inherited the land. (laughs) They had trouble getting the land. Now they had the land. They lost the land back and forth, you know. 27 times Jerusalem has been turned over. Now, while in Egypt, someone reported that Epiphanes had been killed in battle. This was a report that was generated, and it made its way back to Jerusalem, causing Jerusalem to totally celebrate and rejoice. Ding dong, the witch is dead, right? Oh my goodness, the guy that's been ruling us, the guy that's been oppressing us, the guy that's been subjecting us to warfare like the other guys in the past, he's dead, let's rejoice. So they started partying and celebrating. They even organized a revolt to get rid of Manelaus. Let's get rid of that false priest, that pseudo-priest, he's horrible. We lost this king guy, let's kick this guy's butt, get him out, and we'll get things back to how they should be. But... Antiochus Epiphanes was not dead. And so when he gets word that this stuff is happening just north of him, what does he do? He assembles his force. He literally swept through the land like a tornado. He killed 40,000 people in three days. Absolute bloodshed. He overturned Jerusalem and he regained his power. And when he came in and did all of this, Manelaus led Epiphanes to the temple. Let's just go ahead and drive the final nail in the coffin of the Jews. And he takes Epiphanes and he marches him right into the holiest of holies, the most sacred part of the temple, where Epiphanes does what? He destroys the scrolls, the law that they'd had all this time. He takes a pig and sacrifices it on the altar. And then from the dead pig burning on the altar. And you got to know with the Jews, you don't do swine. Okay, this is terrible. This is one of the worst defilements ever for them. I know it sounds crazy, but it's a very serious thing for them. To take a pig and to sacrifice it, to enter the holiest of holies was insane. To take a pig and to sacrifice it on their holy altar was un- it was unfathomable to them. And he takes a pig and he burns it on the altar and he boils it into a broth and he takes this broth and he has his men sprinkle it throughout the temple, thus defiling the entire temple. It was this act of defiling the temple which Daniel referred to as the abomination of desolation. Maybe you've heard of that. The Lord Jesus took this event, right, this historical event that happened before him, he took this event and he prophesied that a similar thing would happen in the future when Antichrist comes and enters the temple, because the temple will be rebuilt, he'll enter it and he'll proclaim himself as God, thus defiling the temple once again. Those are the parallels. Now, the prophet Daniel 
also said that the temple would be polluted for 2,300 days, Daniel 8, 14. In exact accordance with that prophecy, it was exactly 2,300 days, six and a half years before the temple was cleansed. Who cleansed the temple? Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus revolted against the Syrian king, and he captured the attention of the Israelites, and he formed a small militia. And he basically, over time, eventually overthrew the king, the Syrian king. He won all of these little skirmishes and finally won kind of a major battle over him. He captured Jerusalem and he cleansed the temple. The Maccabees, who were of the Asmonean family, began a line of high priests known as the Asmonean dynasty. Their sons ruled as priests in Jerusalem for three, probably the next three to four generations. They also constantly had to defend Jerusalem against constant attacks of the Syrian army who were trying to recapture the city and recapture the temple over and over and over. These guys never had peace the whole time they were in place. Uh, During this time, because of all of this battle and not having peace, and it's like trying to do the priestly duties and lead the people spiritually, and at the same time having to have a knife in one hand with a Bible in the other, you know, that's kind of what they were doing. It's like, gosh, we can't focus on this thing right because we're constantly having to fight off our enemies. What happened was one of these Asmonean priest, he made a pact with the rising power in the West. What was that rising power? Rome. He signed a treaty with Rome that was supposed to guarantee Jerusalem's protection in the event of a Syrian attack. Now you must know that because when we read the New Testament, we, Rome is in power and in control and Rome is all over this thing. This treaty is what brought them into Israel's history. This is what brought them into the picture. This guy going out and trying to do a right thing, he invites in probably one of the worst enemies of all time. For the Jews, that is. As the battles between the Asmoneans and Syrians raged on, Rome was sitting there going, hmm, just watching, learning, studying. Remember the treaty? They're supposed to be helping But they're watching, and they're learning, and they're evaluating, and they're structuring and trying to figure out, okay, what can we do about this thing? Finally, the governor of Idumea, named Antipater, uh, he was a descendant of Esau, uh, which is not the line of Jacob, so this is an an offshoot, if you will. He made a pact, this particular guy made a pact with two other neighboring kings and attacked Jerusalem, trying to overthrow the authority of the Asmonean high priest. And they are basically representing, in a sense, Rome. Both sides, okay, so the Asmoneans and the you know, side of Antipater, uh, they sought the help of a Roman general named Pompey, who was stationed to the north with a massive army. A massive army, an army that was a meat grinder that really nothing on earth at that point could stop. And so both of them are talking to him, the Asmoneans and Antipater. Hey, what will it take to get you to help us to either, you know, obviously with the Asmoneans, to protect Jerusalem or with the other side to conquer it for us? What would it take? And, and, and uh, Pompey says, how about some money? And so what happens? All of a sudden there begins a bidding war and... Antipater had far more money than the Asmoneans. And so 
what happened? Pompey was paid, and he besieged Jerusalem and conquered it in 63 B.C. From that time on, Palestine was under the authority and power of Rome. That was it. General Pompey and the Roman Senate appointed Antipater as the procurator of Judea, the region, and he in turn made his two sons kings of Galilee and Judea. Uh, the son who became the king of Judea is known to us as Herod the what? Herod the Great. You see how this all plays out? This is all happening during this 400 years. Herod the Great was in power when Jesus was born. Herod the Great was literally a great builder. He developed structure and buildings and things in, in the region that just no one else had ever done. He was an incredible builder. He was also a paranoid psychopath. He was. He murdered his own family members when, threatened, when they threatened his throne. He murdered all of the you know, two-year-old and younger boys, toddlers in Bethlehem trying to extinguish the Messiah when he learned of the Messiah had come and was living there or had born, been born there. I mean, this guy was a psycho. He was the reason why Joseph, Mary, and little Jesus at the time moved to Egypt. Now, let's just boil down this period. During the intertestamental period, Israel was subjected to continuous war and bloodshed, foreign invaders and oppressors, right? You got the Persians, Alexandrians, Egyptians, Syrians, and Romans. They were subjected to confusing religious separatism, Hellenists, Pharisees, Sadducees, and a group that I didn't even mention earlier, the Essenes, who are the Dead Sea Scroll people. They're the ones that, you know, the Qumran, they're the ones that wrote that, and we found that years ago. So they had these four groups, religious groups. It was just confusing, I think, to the average person. It's like, well, what, where, which way do I go? Uh, they were exposed to unprecedented political corruption with the Herodian dynasty. The Herods were horrible for Israel. Terrible. They were terrible, terrible, terrible kings. And last but not least, the worst thing of all during this 400-year period is divine silence. Not a word from God. God had been speaking to them for centuries, correcting them, rebuking them, exhorting them, encouraging them, loving them, guiding them. And during this whole period of 400 years, not a word from their God. And really, ultimately, what they needed was they needed a true Messiah. They had thought that Judas Maccabeus might have been their Messiah and other leaders, but they were all crushed. They were all defeated. They needed God to speak to them. They needed... And here's the thing that's... I don't know if I'd call it irony... I think it's interesting that the vast majority of Jews or people in that region were completely unaware that God had already sent their Messiah to them and he was about 30 years old and about to begin his ministry. He was already in their midst. He was already there. They wanted their Messiah, but he was already there walking in their midst. He was working in a carpentry shop of all places. I guess frying fish for me at 20 wasn't too bad. Actually, I was like 15 when I did that. He was about 30 years old. He was about to begin his ministry. And I tell you what, God was about to break his silence through the prophet John the Baptist. 400 years of suffering, 400 years of oppression, centuries of it, really, if you think about it, far more than 400 years. God was about to let his people know what he was up to, what was about to go down through John the Baptist. We get to John the Baptist. John was born to aged Jewish parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were of a priestly family. Elizabeth was related to Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
This devout couple lived in the hill country of Judea, perhaps Hebron, a priestly city of that region. Uh, the description of John the Baptist in Scripture is brief but stark. Uh, it says he was dressed in camel's hair in a camel's hair garment. That's pretty interesting. I think you can get him at Nordstrom's. Um, he, his clothing was secured by a leather belt. His diet was uh, wild honey and locusts. So he liked bugs and he liked honey. And I tell you, if I ate bugs, I'd have to chase it with honey. Uh, Matthew 3, 4. Uh, his clothing really was symbolic of the Old Testament prophets. Zechariah 13, 4. Particularly Elijah, who foreshadowed John the Baptist. 2 Kings 1, 8. His diet of bugs and wild honey was that of the poorer folks of society. And so here was John the Baptist, and he really related to the poorer folks of society. He wasn't he really, in some ways, stood in bold relief to the wealthy, indulgent Jews of his day. He was, in a sense, because of what he ate and how he dressed and how he carried himself, a walking sermon. A walking rebuke to the indulgent Jews of his day. After 400 years of divine silence, John appeared. Coming from the desert, the traditional meeting place of God and his prophets, he spoke as one having the authority of God and quickly caused great excitement among the people in Israel because he represented the restoration of the voice of prophecy. So people already began to realize with John preaching, he preached with such power and authority that they thought, okay, so God is speaking to us again now. It's been 400 years. This is good. And so he's drawing lots and lots of crowds, lots of people. I don't think they were just coming to see his crazy-looking clothes. They were interested in what he had to say. And uh, he basically had been sent for two primary reasons, John the Baptist, that is. First was to prepare Israel for the arrival of Messiah, uh, Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, and secondly, to identify Messiah. It was his job to identify the Messiah when the Messiah stepped out on the scene, and that's John 1, 33 to 34. Um, John prepared Israel through preaching repentance and through the ritual of water baptism, John's preaching was reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets. He told people uh, basically to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, the prophets had spoken of the kingdom of God. The Old Testament prophets had spoken about the kingdom of God and the Jews longed to see it, but they thought of it as in the nebulous, like the way far off future. Uh, no specific time frame in the Old Testament had been given for the coming of the kingdom and Messiah. Uh, and so when John started to come, he was basically preaching, it's here now, it's about to break through. And so this was a new development in terms of prophecy, or at least prophecy was about to come to pass. He used vivid metaphors and imagery to convey the urgency of the moment, you know, the winnowing fork and these sorts of things that he preached. He just preached, man, we need to be ready now because Messiah is here, it's about to happen, and so we need to be ready now. And I would say that his preaching was fairly simple. It wasn't really all that radical. If you heard it, you would say, man, that was cool. The thing that was radical about his ministry wasn't his preaching. It was his baptism that he did. This is what blew people's minds. In the Old Testament, the Jews had a ritual called proselyte baptism, which was applied to Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. In Jewish categories, the Gentiles were regarded as strangers to the Old Covenant they were outside the covenant community of Israel, so they were considered to be unclean, impure, and defiled. Thus, if Gentiles wanted to convert and become Jewish, in a sense, they had to go through certain procedures, including proselyte baptism. This was a cleansing ritual designed to remove the Gentiles' ceremonial impurity. 
with that background, we can now see how radical it was for, you know, John the Baptist to call not Gentiles, but Israelites to undergo baptism. This is what was so mind-blowing. He was doing the unthinkable. You don't call Jews to come and get baptized to remove their sins so they can be made ceremonially clean. You only do that with Gentiles. That was the Jewish understanding. And so he was doing the opposite of it, which is probably why so many people came out there and go, what the heck is he doing? This is crazy. And yet he was baptizing people in droves. The Jews actually saw themselves as ceremonially clean, meaning having no need for cleansing, having no need for baptism. I don't have to enter the water. I'm Jewish. It's for Gentiles. Therefore, John's call to baptism greatly offended the Pharisees and other religious leaders of the Jews who went down to see what John was doing. And you might recall some of John's harsh exchanges with them. You brood of vipers. You should be getting cleansed because you're not cleansed. Your inwardness is defiled and filthy. You only have the outward appearance. These are the kind of things that he said. These are the kinds of things that Jesus said to them. So part of his deal was to prepare the people through preaching and baptism. Secondly, he came to identify Messiah. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What was he doing in this moment when Jesus was coming toward him? He was identifying Messiah. There's the Lamb of God. He was telling this to people around him. He didn't just say it in his head or in his heart. He said it to those around him. There is the Messiah. So he came to identify. Down in verses 32 and 34 of John chapter 1, he bore witness again saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is what John testified. When John the Baptist was in the wilderness preparing for ministry, maybe praying, getting ready to be sent out by God, he had a vision or some kind of a communication from God came to him, maybe in the form of a vision. That's usually how God spoke in those special circumstances. And in this vision, God said, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm sending you to baptize, uh, to preach repentance, to prepare my people for the coming Messiah. You will baptize, you will even yourself, you will baptize the Messiah. And, and, and you will know that it is him when you baptize him. This is how you'll know it's him when you baptize him. You will see my spirit descend and come to rest upon him. Now, prior to Christ's baptism, John preached Messiah is coming. After Christ's baptism, John preached Messiah is here. That's how his ministry changed and his, word, his preaching changed. I mean, basically, John identified Jesus or the Christ as Messiah. Look, there he is. He is the Lamb of God. He is the person whom God told me about, the anointed one, the true baptizer, you know, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That is what he did. Now, a question arises. If baptism had to do with becoming ceremonially clean and it was kind of for Gentiles and all that, and yet it was for Jews in a sense because of John the Baptist, but we have to be saying to ourselves, if, if that's the case, if it has to do with washing away sin and all that, then why did Christ come to him to be baptized? I mean, obviously, Jesus Christ didn't need to be baptized. He wasn't ceremonially unclean. He wasn't a sinner. He wasn't like us in that regard. And so why 
right? People came to John to repent and to have their sins washed away. Is that why Christ came to be baptized? No. Let's take a look at our main text. Now, that was that longest introduction I think I've ever done in any sermon. It's 50 minutes. Look at our main text, Matthew 3, 13 through 17. This passage that Robin, and thank you for reading that, that Robin read, it provides us with three reasons why Christ was baptized and why it was necessary for him to do it and why it has to do with his work. Number one, to fulfill all righteousness. Verse 15, right? Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. These are the words of Christ. Okay, what happened was Jesus comes to John and says, you know, he leaves Galilee and he comes down to the riverside and he says, you must baptize me. And John's like, dude, you should be baptizing me. Are you kidding me? He already knows who Jesus is. John did not want to baptize Jesus at first. In fact, in fact he tried to stop him. Hey, it should be the other way around, pal. And this was because he didn't understand part of the Lord's work. He didn't understand part of the Lord's mission. In order to qualify as Savior, Christ had to fulfill all righteousness, which means that he had to obey every jot and pen stroke of God's law. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill it. To do it all. Law in that particular text is a reference to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, which were written by Moses, which basically contain all of the law. The Pentateuch presents three categories of God's law. You have the moral law, you have the civil law, and you have the ceremonial law. God's law is vast. It covers every area of life and living. And yet through John the Baptist, God added another requirement to his list of God's already vast list of laws. And that requirement, which became in a way a new law, was baptism. Baptism was now required of God's people. Just as don't eat pulled pork sandwiches. That has to do with the ceremonial law. Baptism becomes a law in and of itself once John begins to proclaim what God instructed him to proclaim. I want my people baptized. It is binding on them. They must do this. That's what happened. It was required. Jesus had to fulfill, he had to fulfill everything. Everything that was required of God's people. Everything. Including baptism. You see, Jesus didn't come down to the, to, the, to the water to get baptized because he needed to be cleansed, ceremonially made pure through water. He came down because it was required of God's people. And in order for him to fulfill all righteousness, he had to do everything that God's people were required to do, even baptism. That is why Jesus got baptized. Have you ever heard that before? Probably not. I learned it this week. I thought, are you kidding me? I've wondered why he got baptized all this time, and I've come up with about 50 different reasons. I had never thought that, in a sense, it became a requirement for God's people. It's pretty astounding when you think about it. What does it cause in me? Great admiration for Jesus that he would even humble himself to engage in something that sinners had to do. Why? To earn our righteousness. That's why he did it. It's astounding. 
He did not go to John the Baptist to be baptized to wash away his sins like everyone else. He went to John the Baptist because it was required of his people. In doing so, he got one more step closer to fulfilling all righteousness. When he did that, it was like, okay, you fulfilled that bit of righteousness for your people. If Christ had not been baptized, he would not have fulfilled all righteousness. Those are his own words. And thus disqualified himself from becoming our Savior, and you and I would still be in our sins and still alienated from God. It was something that had to happen. We would be without hope if he hadn't submitted to that. The second reason why Christ was baptized, to be anointed by the Spirit of God. Verse 16, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. 700 years before Christ was born, um, Isaiah prophesied that God would anoint Messiah with his Spirit. You can read about that in Isaiah 42.1 and in 61 verse 1. Verse 16 shows us that this prophecy was fulfilled when Christ was baptized. God anointed Christ with his spirit during the baptism. Right after he came up out of the water, God put his spirit on Christ. Essential that Christ gets baptized because that's when the anointing happens. He came up out of the water, the spirit of God descended like a dove and came to rest upon him. This was the anointing of the spirit that Isaiah spoke about. Jesus even declared this truth about himself during a sermon he preached in his hometown of Nazareth. And how did the people respond? Wonderful, he's anointed. No, they took him to a cliff and tried to throw him over. People boiled in anger. Jesus said a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and except by his own family. Now there are a couple of very important things that I'd like you to notice about verse 16. Look at the phrase like a dove. What are dove? They are gentle creatures. They display a kind of grace. They display a kind of meekness. They display a kind of humility. They are also devoted and monogamous. They stick together. They don't divorce. They won't even defend themselves when attacked. Oh, they're sissy lalas. No, they just don't defend themselves. Today, dove have come to represent or symbolize peace in our world. The Spirit came upon Jesus in this fashion, and Jesus' life and ministry was characterized by these dove-like qualities, right? Christ was gentle. Christ was gracious. Christ was meek. I should say Christ is humble. It's not that he was. He is. Christ is devoted and committed. Christ did not defend himself when he could have. could have summoned legions of angels to come to his aid. The Father would have rescued him. He did not. Instead, he laid down his life like a dove. Christ bore the fruits of the Spirit because he was anointed by the Spirit who came upon him like a dove. Just think about this for yourself. If the Spirit of God has come upon you, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, the presence of the Spirit would be the evidence of your true belief and transformation or regeneration. If he has come upon you, then you too will bear these dove-like characteristics, gentleness, meekness, humility. You will bear the fruits of the Spirit just as Jesus did. Second, the anointing of the Spirit shows that Christ, as a man, was not aided in any way by his divine nature. 
If Christ had been aided by his divine nature, remember we talked about incarnation. He's God, fully God, and he's fully man. If he had been aided by his godness, there would have been no need for him to be anointed with the Spirit. In the Old Testament, God anointed many of his servants with his Spirit so that they could accomplish certain objectives and missions and tasks. Uh, Servants like King David, at one point he cried out, please, Lord, take not your Spirit from me. He had been anointed with the Spirit to do what he was called to do. In a similar way, God anointed Christ, the man, so that he could accomplish God's objective and mission, which is what? Redemption. The third reason why Christ was baptized, we're getting close to the end, I may as well finish, to be identified as the Son of God by the Father. Verse 17, a voice from heaven said, what? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We've all heard that. After the Spirit came to rest on Christ, a voice resounded from heaven, boomed forth. This was the voice of God the Father, the one who had sent Christ in the first place, the one who sent Christ to condescend and to come down to us and to take on manhood, to become a man, to become our Redeemer. Those who were standing by may have heard the voice as others had done during other scenarios. John 12, 29. One thing is for certain. I don't know exactly who heard God's voice at this point. I do know that Christ heard the voice and I do know that John the Baptist heard the voice. In John chapter 1, verse 34, we looked at it earlier. John the Baptist said, and I have seen and, I, and have borne born witness that this is the Son of God. How did he know this was the Son of God? God declared it right at his baptism. John already knew that he was the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit because the dove coming upon him, the Spirit coming upon him, signified that. He understood that. But how did he know that the same person that was being baptized was actually the Son of God, that he was actually divine? Because God declared declared it at his baptism. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. That's how John knew. That's why John proclaimed what he proclaimed. Did he proclaim Jesus as the Son of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Notice the phrase, with whom I am well pleased. Why was God the Father well pleased with Christ, the Son of God? Right? He says this, this is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Why did he say this about Jesus at this point? Jesus hadn't engaged in ministry or done anything really significant at this point with the exception of maybe what we see when he was very young at 12 in the temple. That was pretty, that was pretty exciting and pretty impressive. And here at this baptism, God says, this is my son. He tells this to Jesus. He tells this to John, maybe others. And, and he says, in whom I am well, I'm so pleased with him. And why did he say this to him? Because up to this point in his life, Christ had obeyed all that the Father called him to obey. The Father commended Christ right there in that moment for getting baptized. Why? Because Christ was seeking to fulfill all righteousness, which was part of his mission. Being baptized had to do with fulfilling all righteousness, which was the will of God and totally and absolutely requisite for Messiah. It is as if the father said to the son, Son, you are on the right track, and I am well pleased with you. Keep doing what you're doing. 
Another thing we need to notice here is the timing of this. This happened right at the onset of Jesus' earthly ministry. His ministry was about to begin. His baptism was basically the starting point for it. The Spirit came upon Christ for the purpose of empowering him for his ministry, which was about to begin. I can't think of a better send-off into the ministry than what happened right here. The voice of the Father coming down from heaven saying, Go for it, son. What an encouragement this must have been to Christ. What an affirmation. You ask, why did Jesus get baptized? There's three reasons. Some say, well, he did it to model an example for us so that we would be baptized. Well, sure. But according to our text, those are the three. What might we take away from this text? There are a number of things we could go with as we wrap it up. These are quick. As Christians, as adopted sons and daughters, we should seek to please the Father through obeying his will. We should follow Christ's example. It's within our new nature to do so. We see this modeled in the text. Christ aimed to fulfill all righteousness. And what should we aim to do? We should aim to be righteous because it pleases our Father in heaven. Secondly, as Spirit-anointed believers, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. You've been marked by Him. You've been sealed by Him, Ephesians 1. As Spirit-anointed believers, we should seek to display the dove-like qualities and characteristics of the Spirit. His fruits. Love. Joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and so important, self-control. Spirit-saturated fruitfulness is pleasing to God. Another thing, as New Covenant members, Christ expects us to follow his example and to be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, you should consider doing so. Baptism is also pleasing to God. It's pleasing to the whole Godhead. Lastly, rejoice. Just rejoice. Christ earned our righteousness for us. We've seen another example of how he did that here. And let me tell you, friends, without that righteousness, we don't know God. We can't come up with it on our own. We need an alien righteousness. We need a foreign righteousness. Righteousness had to be accomplished and acquired through someone who is perfect, who has never breached God's law. And Christ alone did that. All of our righteousness, apart from faith in Christ, is but filthy rags. He, in this text that we're looking at, earned our righteousness for us so that we could be reconciled to the Father, received by him, when the Father looks upon my friend Carl in this front row, he sees the righteousness of Christ. If all he saw was the righteousness of Carl, Carl would never know God. Because his righteousness is filth. So what do we do? We see another example of how Christ, the work of Christ, has to do with earning and securing our righteousness so that we can know God. So that we can be forgiven and restored to him. So what should we do when we see Christ doing this here? Rejoice. 